Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 251st of Career Podcast. Our today's guest is Mr. John Joe Hemmons. He's a senior environment artist at That Snow Moon Studio from Liverpool, United Kingdom. And of course, before getting to the captions of the like the episode, let me quickly mention that uh, in the for context section of the captions, you can find the ID to his Instagram account, the links to his art station and Twitter, and also a link to a certain YouTube video, which is also in his YouTube channel as well which is titled UE5 Tequila Sunset, which, well, if you know anything of his recent viral posts or what the Tequila Sunset, like, you know, is referencing to, well, I think you're going to like this episode. Well, with that kind of, you know, introduction out of the way, I need to also mention that, yes, I think I mentioned in my previous episode as well, like, my schedule is, like, unintentionally turning into a monthly upload right now. Um... But yeah, it's kind of like much more the frequency of my uploads are much lower because of like, you know, of course, my IRL stuff, things that are happening in my real life. And um, I think I explained them in previous episodes, but basically like, you know, I might, you know, move houses or even countries, I don't know, immigrate to another place, but that's to be seen based on their response to my visa. All right. So basically, I'm going to be really busy. So thank you. I genuinely you know, want to thank anyone who's, who has been sticking till now and has been you know putting up with all this stuff delays and just to give another good news i have two more episodes lined up for tomorrow i have like with this one included i have three new episodes going to be uploaded soon so 251 252 and 253 so with those up the side of the way let's jump into this episode well um first things first thank you so much for taking out your time to join us uh, on this episode i really appreciate that i mean i'm sure you must be swamped with messages after your recent posts that like this post that got the uploaded everywhere got viral everywhere you know yeah um but no problem it's uh, always nice to take the time to talk to um to anyone about art really whoever's interested <laughs> Yeah, and um, there's actually so, so many things that I really want to ask you and discuss about it, especially, you know, since um, I'm also like, you know, I'm, I'm not an, I wouldn't even consider myself a junior environment artist, but I'm in the process of like becoming a junior environment. Does that make sense? So there's yeah. even so many things that are kind of fresh for me as well when it, when it, when it comes to like the pipeline. So I, I really have some interesting, you know, questions for you as well when it, regarding the pipeline of your workflow as well. And um but first, let's start with the signature question of the podcast, which is give us a little introduction on how we got into the world of visual arts and design. Basically, tell us your origin story of, you know, how you basically, like, you know, what path led you to, be, to decide to become an artist for the rest of your life and just uh, pick a creative career, you know, for yourself, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, I suppose I, I was lucky to have quite a creative upbringing. Um, I had um, artists in the family. My grandmother was an artist. Um, she worked um, a lot in enamels and painting and sculpting. Um, and she was fortunate enough to have some of her stuff exhibited um, from time to time. Um, so she always uh, encouraged me to kind of pursue that, um, especially when I was young, you know, you know between like one and 10. Um, and I think around 10 or 11, I, I kind of fell out of art in many ways like you know school hits you, you start needing to do your gcses sorry if you can hear the ringing by the way yeah, no worries no worries i don't um, think it's going to damage the audio so much yeah yeah so good um all right so i think you uh you've kind of you know noticed a little bit of you know cut between the speaking well because he had to answer the phone so yeah we're back again 
with the answer to the question, which is, uh, which was, he was basically telling us her origin story, if you know, how he became an artist. So yeah, we're saying. Yeah, sorry. Um, I was, yeah, around um, 10, you know, I fell out of touch with art in many ways. Um, getting into secondary school, you know, you have to start paying attention to, you know, uh, stuff like maths, English, more important um, areas of education. And I also started playing a lot of video games and stopped doing all of the artistic stuff in my free time. I ended up getting like a C, a C grade in my art studies um, at school, so I didn't do particularly well. Um, and yeah, it was only until I kind of hit the end of my studies where I realized that I had completely dropped out of art. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do for a career anymore. Um, I, I didn't know what I wanted to get out of school. Um, and I watched a, a YouTube video that Valve had uploaded probably like a few years before I don't know when it was, maybe 12 years ago or something now. And it was all about the cafeteria that they've got there. And all I thought about offices at this point in my like life was that, you know, they had like the water dispenser and like coffee machines and desks and computers. And that's, that's all like an office was, which didn't to a 16 year old sound like something particularly enjoyable, but the valve office was just full of like, they had like a snack room they had like all of like the soda and like soft drinks you could ever want. Um, they had catered lunches. It looked, yeah, it looked amazing. Like I'd never seen something that cool before. And I wanted to, you know, see if it was possible to get a job doing that. And I checked the Valve website and yeah, they had job listings. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know why, but at this point, I'd played, you know, maybe two, 300 hours of TF2, but I just didn't know. I never realized that this was a job. But like there were people behind like the games that I enjoyed. And yeah, since then I just joined college. Um, didn't really learn anything in two years of college. Um, but then university hit and I started taking it very seriously and um, yeah, worked hard and here I am. All right, awesome. Yeah. And like, it's kind of interesting because when I was younger as well, um, I guess 14, 15 years old, like it's kind of funny how like media can affect, you know, how we view things you know what i mean by that like you know at, at some point when i was really young like the series big bang theory really affected uh like my, i was like wow cool i really want to get into stem and you know physics and theoretical stuff and like that because they have such yeah. cool lives you know and stuff like that but then a couple of years later i watched silicon valley and i was like oh god coding is must be so cool you know they all have this you know, <laughs> yeah, incubator yeah. houses have you watched those series by the way i haven't seen big bang but i've seen clips of silicon valley yeah it's it's very uh like tech tech oriented yeah. and like um just startups in chaotic in LA, right? comedic yeah you like you know that comedic stuff yeah and um yeah i i, get, I really get what you're saying you know because sometimes watching documentaries of behind the scenes of like some games that get made or you see the environments you know how people interact with each other you know the studio as well like for example in your you know scenario this type of stuff like actually you know could really like affect you know how we yeah see well i think i think the thing that interested me was it was just a video about people getting lunch and eating snacks like uh, i mean it sounds bad right because like i was more interested at the time about like a cool office rather than doing the process of like making art like i think the, the passion for art came a lot later when i um actually knew that that's what i wanted to do and um kind of 
connected with that in the development field but yeah what initially inspired me was just like oh i can work in a cool office all day and like eat cookies and you know uh, live a very unhealthy lifestyle yeah and, and have it and have every flavor of red bull at my disposal at any moment you know? yeah, <laughs> yeah that sounds awesome yeah and um yeah but that, that's actually if you think about it that's kind of like you know really genuine feeling like you know those feelings like it's kind of like you know it has a childlike innocence to those type of, you know, visions we have, you know, when, for example, in your case as well, in my case as well, for example, when I watched those series and I got inspired, I was like, oh, cool. I want to, you know, do, do this stuff instead of like, you know, sometimes, you know, we try to overanalyze it logically, you know, every aspect of everything. And it also comes to our, you know, choices of careers as well. So I think, you know, we should. We should take all these inspirations all together and then decide, you know, what what exactly is good for us. So I think, yeah, yeah. and what I mean by that, those little things that seem really unimportant, I think they're actually really important. You know, we should pay attention to those. You know, for other people, it might be different, you know? Yeah, and I, I'll go back to these things that, like, I remember being influences and just kind of check up on them and see how I still feel about it. I think one of the most interesting things about going back to that Valve video now, like as, you know, more of a well-rounded adult is just realizing that that's not the kind of like thing that I want anymore. Like my attitude has changed. Like now I'm actually in it. I, I don't, I don't need like a cafeteria with loads of snacks, but it was cool back then. Um, and also I think one of the funniest things about that video is like, it's such a negative video too. Like, I don't think I've ever seen a studio put stuff like that out. Like one of the guys in it is literally talking about how he would get sick from eating like the fruit and nut, like from the fruit and nut jar, because he was like, Oh yeah, people always putting their hands in. And like, I swear I'm getting sick because like, you know, so many people are touching this food and valve put this up as like promotional material for that studio. (laughs) Like they were happy to leave in stuff that just made it look so um, unhealthy and negative. But they, yeah, um, didn't care because it was cool. But it was real. Yeah, yeah, very real. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's the point, right? Yeah. And well, you already kind of you know mentioned you know how your path was, but I was kind of I'm kind of wondering you know were you origin from the like originally since you were like in high school, were you dead set on like you know studying art and design or going that path, or was I don't know maybe because of like you know our family or other doubts you might have because of your friend's choices you 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 probably this thought comes to a lot of people's mind that oh all right i'm gonna have i'm gonna pursue something safe like engineering or law or something then have art on the side always you know or was there anything like that for you or from the get-go you know you know you were just gonna go you know full throttle in this art direction you know um I mean, after I, well, during my time at school, I wasn't even really considering career. Like I didn't even think about getting a job until I was 16, like what I wanted to do. And for most of being 15, 16, I had no clue. Like, I I think it was just the, the generic answers that I thought you should have at that age of like, well, maybe I should be a doctor. Maybe I should be a lawyer. And now I'm mature enough to realize that like there was no way i was ever going to do either of those things like i'm too stupid i don't have the brain for any sort of like uh research or like those big books they have to read like it's just it's not it's not how i operate and it was never going to happen um but I, i don't think i actually had a genuine passion about anything until i realized you could make games and at the time, it was the only thing that I saw that I thought maybe I could do. Um, and so I just 
put every ounce of effort into doing it. Um, and yeah, thankfully it became a thing, but no, I, I didn't, I, I just didn't know. Um, I suppose I, I didn't think about what a career would look like for me and didn't have the perspective to realize how impactful that would be on my life at the time. Yeah. And, um, wow, that, that's, that's really interesting because I've heard, heard this kind of like, you know, similar story from a lot of different artists as well, that how, um, we really don't think art as a career at first, you know, it's not, and I, and I think it's mostly of course, because of like, you know, this is like, I'm going to be honest, like we don't really realize this, but this entertainment industry that is really big now, it's, it's kind of a new thing. We, we don't really take into consideration that, yeah, sure, since 80s and 90s, yeah, there were, but this industry as a huge, like, you know, player in the world economy right now is pretty new, like both entertainment, both animation, you know, both games, just anything revolving around the entertainment industry. And, but now I think, I think, and the reason that's kind of interesting and profound for me is because I wonder, like, like, for example, kids that are like right now 10 or 12, right? Who is like, there's so many resources out there. There's so many, like the industry is now a big player, you know? Or maybe there's some kid right now who's messing around in Unreal Engine, trying to make his skins for his Fortnite character or her Fortnite character, you know? Like these things, like we, I think we, 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 we've just scratched the surface in my opinion. Yeah, I think I would I would like to say that, but I suppose we just have to see where the industry goes. I mean, right now we're oh, exactly. we're exactly. looking at probably the biggest shrinking in the games industry that like at least I've witnessed since getting into it. Like um, you know, so many layoffs right now. Like um I I would love to say it's getting bigger and getting easier to get into, but um I, I don't know if that's the case. I think it's gonna be it's gonna be a rough few years. Um, I'm hoping that the industry sees health again and is able to keep growing and expanding, but um, I'm a little unsure about that right now. It's it's nice that it has formalized, though. I mean, you mentioned like the 80s and 90s. Like, I think getting into a game dev studio back then, you didn't even really necessarily need to have like loads of game dev experience. You just needed to know a bit about your field and be passionate. Um, I'm sure, I think I remember like, the people who worked on Halo talking about like what they were doing before Halo, and it's like they weren't doing game development before getting into into that game. Like they were, it was a very mixed group of people who didn't really have the experiences and education that we have to this day. It's, it's changed so much. Um, the process now is very like formal, and the industry is really really matured, um, which is a, which is a good thing. Um, it gives you a lot more of a a route in. But I think it's a lot harder to get into the industry now than it used to be. <laughs> yeah, and I, and, I, and I agree with you in a lot of senses. But I think, you know, this is my kind of like, you know, hot take. Like, um, I think it's it will shift in a positive direction in the next couple of years. Like, there's going to be, as you said, yeah, there's going to be a lot of more, you know, well, catastrophic, you know, I think layoffs, I think more naturally. I think because, like, the way I see it is, since this uh, industry has been getting a lot of like attention and because of it, a lot of sponsors and, you know, uh, big corporations are investing a lot of money into the studios. So of course, a lot of gaming studios because of this huge, because, because they have to impress this investors, they, they're not really, really taking those big risk, fun 
decisions when it comes to making their games. They're just they going this tale boring route to make games. I'm not going to mention like games or certain studios in a bad name, but I'm going to mention those who are doing a good thing, who are going really great. Like the biggest example, and I could think of is Larian Studio. Like, oh yeah, I don't, I don't know if you played Baldur's Gate, Baldur's Gate Three. Yeah, you? twice. Yeah, I completed it twice. Yeah, yeah, I just recently finished it. Like, oh my god, it's literally. I know this is like a really huge thing to say, but in my whole life of playing, if I have to objectively rank a game a ten out of ten, that's the only game that I've played that I could confidently say it's a ten out of ten game. Yeah. Like, oh my god, it was so good that other game dev companies and studios got salty. For how perfect this game was, and they were worried that you know the game, that the gamers would demand the same level of standard out of them. Just it just it's a testament to the level of like the irony of it. Just what what's going on in game industry, and I think in the future, like after like a, like a while, when these big companies, these big huge franchises, and we're we're seeing a downfall of a lot of them actually. A lot of these franchises that we had a lot of fun you know growing up playing them, and. I think, well, those investors will, in, after after some time, or not just not those investors, the studios will realize that hey, we actually need to connect to the fan base and make games that people really like. Like uh, a great example of that is Cyberpunk, catastrophic, you know, launch, bad launch, but right now if you play this, it's it's genuinely like one of the best single player games you could ever play. Yeah, I played it recently with the DLC and, and yes, all the updates, I, and it was it was extremely impressive. Yeah, like the how they've turned that that um, the launch around was yeah remarkable, and and also I think what people don't realize is that well maybe the gamers don't, but man, to work through that criticism. I, I the the developers I know that a lot of developers um, decided to leave afterwards, and I wouldn't blame them. The crunch did sound brutal, but the ones who decided to stay and work through that uh, negative online criticism, I, I don't know how they've done it. Like it's um, really admirable because uh, it, it's been your life for however many years you've been working on that project. And just to see like hatred and vitriol. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I, I can't imagine it. I really can't. Yeah, it's crazy to think about. Like actually, if you, when you, when you put it that way, like, Literally every project you work on is a part of it's a chunk of your life. Yeah, it's really weird when you think about it that way, you know. Yeah, I've I've been working at Rocksteady for what three and a half years now, so like that project is most of my career up till this point. It's most of my adult adult life. Um, but that'll change as I get older, sure. But like, yeah, right now that that kind of matters to me, um, and I'm sure how people feel about our project is gonna impact me. Yeah yeah and you just gotta wait in a couple of years and see you know i i think you know after a while I, I i don't know i'm not saying from experience but i'm just saying this from what i've heard from the experience of others i think it's gonna be really crazy when you look, look back at your career after a while especially like you know um when there's so many projects you're gonna work on so many different teams are gonna use you know, it's, gonna, it's gonna be really interesting right yeah yeah it'll be a very cool range of experiences, I hope. Yeah. And all right. So here's here's another thing. What is your main branch of design that you're focusing on right now? And tell us about your experience from the start of it until now. I mean, of course, in the introduction, I mentioned that you're an environment artist. And well, the big piece that really got viral for you was the 
like the Disco Elysium piece as well. So we all know you're, you're doing 3D environment, but how was it in the beginning? Like first, you know, was it first 3D? Was it then later on you branched out into 3D environment? Now, now that you're in 3D environment, what sort of environment do you want to focus on? Do you want to, you know, go like, you know, sci-fi environments, you know, medieval environments, like, you know, just how would you see this kind of roadmap, you know, branching out, you know? Um, yeah, you, you've asked an interesting time, I suppose. Whenever you, whenever I feel like I finish a project, it's, um, you know, you feel like you're at a crossroads and you don't really know where that path's going to lead. Um, but I, I suppose it would be better if I go back to the beginning, um, to answer the first part of your question. Um, yeah, I did get into this and, uh, at like university, I, I had the options open to me of like character concept environment and that was the kind of three routes that we saw at the time as being like availabilities as artists um and yeah getting into environment art just felt natural to me um i've always had just more of a leaning interest into environmental things than characters um and yeah i found that i was much better at it as well um i still to this day have barely done characters i made like a um, an armored Norse warrior for like a castle project I did, but that's the only character I've ever done really. And even then it was using like a base mesh and just putting like armor on top of them. Um, but no, I yeah, just got into that. I, I remember hearing at the time it was slightly easier to get in because there's often more environment jobs than character art jobs. And that sounded like a good thing for me to choose as well. Like if I can find more work in this, then that might make the, getting in easier but that was just a small detail that didn't really motivate me into it it was more that i was interested in it um and throughout uni yeah i just kept doing environments i I definitely leaned into um exteriors for a long time but then found probably the most success at the end of uni working on interiors so like the subway station and the wills room project were like the things that kind of got me work post uni um and it was easy scale to do for a portfolio piece. Like, you know, it's just one room. It's nice and contained. You have a lot of control over like how the space looks. Um, both, you know, well, just the Will's room has like a kind of a window out into the real world. So it kind of makes the, it makes the location feel a little bit bigger than it is. Um, but ever since I kind of got into the field, like into the industry, finding the time to do environments has been really tough. Um, so I've only, I think, yeah, I've only done two environments since I got into the industry, um, which is the forest, I think, and the um, and uh, the disco scene, uh, just because they just take so long. Uh, I think those projects took between like eight and nine months um, of dev time, like just whenever I can do it. Um, so I, I leaned into doing more asset-y type stuff for a while just to see if I could build up my skill set in like texturing and like more realistic detailing um especially like the swords was a lot of fun um again just saw it in a museum and thought it was cool Uh, i'm occasionally just influenced by something cool that i've seen um not necessarily like what's doable within a type production you know time period um but yeah it's it's uh i haven't really thought about my portfolio and like what i've been working on as like a a branch of design I focused on. I've, I've always just kind of done whatever I haven't really known how to do, I suppose. Um, so like the forest was, I don't know how to do any foliage stuff. I should make foliage stuff and maybe make a scene out of it. Um, 
the swords was I hadn't really done hard surf and weaponry type things before, or like semi-organic hard surface where you've got kind of like more rounded shapes. Um, yeah, uh, just trying to learn a new thing with each project. I suppose the Disco Elysium scene is probably the closest thing to like something I already knew how to do because it's just like another interior, very similar to Will's Room in terms of like scope, just with, uh, you know, five years of experience tacked on and all that stuff. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, what's really interesting about your portfolio is that there's like the diversity of the styles of things that are, that are on it. You know, there's the wheels room, there's a train, there's the the sores, there's a foliage, there's the, like the vending machine, there's this Elysium one. And, and and they're all really good in its own. And and because the and the thing is, you know, as juniors, you hear a lot of things, you know, they other seniors tell you that, oh, get niche, you know, do that and do this. And I guess, you know, right now, if I have to, I guess, make a conclusion on, you know, what to do actually is to just focus on making things that you really enjoy, because when yeah. you do that, you, you're really going to nail it and make those pieces pop out. Yeah. Also, I mean, I would say that there is like an argument to be made for going niche. Like if if you're really into like foliage art, um, I remembered after I did the forest, like there was a lot of interest in like, hey, do you want to come do foliage at this studio or foliage at that studio? Um, and yeah, there are specialisms with environment art you can go into if you're passionate about it. But at the time when I saw those jobs come through, I couldn't think of anything worse. Like going to a studio to just make trees or just make like bushes. Some people love that actually. No, some people do. But for me, that sounded like hell. Like I, I finished that project, not really loving the process and feeling like, ah, yeah, I I don't like, I don't think it's for me. Like I I don't think doing foliage is for me. I'm happy to have it as like a part of my skill set, But when I work in the industry, I want to, be at a job where I'm given the freedom to jump between different things. Like I don't want it just to be one thing. And that isn't really a job you can get everywhere. Like whatever job I work in, there's going to be like a, we need you to do mostly this thing, but maybe on the side you can like, you know, dabble on, on, on other piece, bits and pieces. But yeah, I, I would always encourage everyone just to do the thing they're passionate about because that will mean that the work gets done and especially when you're working on this stuff in your free time like building a portfolio is it's difficult um and if you're not passionate about the work that you're making you're just not gonna want to do it yeah definitely and um well here's another interesting question that kind of ties to the subject that you just talked about okay which is uh how does your design process usually go anytime you want to start working on a new design project? Like basically as an environment artist, what does the structure of your pipeline look like? What steps do you take, you know, step by step, you know, till you get to the finished result? You know? um, usually just starts with reference gathering, block out. It's, it's so generic. Like I'm not, I'm not doing anything particularly crazy. Um, I don't even know sometimes where the idea kind of crops up, but like, um, whenever there's an idea that appears yeah it's just it's just the generic like ref gather find the interesting details if if past the ref gathering stage it's still interesting then i'll just power on um I, i'm not someone who goes through a lot of ideas like i definitely have a graveyard of like old art pieces that were never finished but 
that's pretty small compared to the stuff that has actually been finished. Uh, like if I get an idea and I kind of commit to it past the reference gathering stage, it it more often than not gets followed through to completion. Um, and yeah, it's yeah. I, I wouldn't say I've got like a crazy different um, process to to anyone, but when it comes to the large scale scene stuff, like the disco scene, it was some weeks I would prefer to be an engine doing engine stuff, like, you know, asset placement, moving stuff around, tweaking stuff like, like, you know, your Tyler balls or your materials or, um, getting animations and stuff like that. And other weeks I'd be like, I'm so sick of being in a real, I just want to be in painter. I just want to make assets. Like I just try to reward myself with the stuff that's, um, that I want to do at the time. Um, whatever's just most interesting to me to make sure I get through it. There are going to be weeks where you have to, you have to do the stuff that you don't want to do. Um, but it's how these projects get done. Yeah. And um, yeah, I can, I can understand what you're trying to say because um, there's one thing about turning environment art that sometimes, you know, you start working on a project a step by step and you go through all this stuff. And sometimes when it comes to maybe texturing or sculpting or, you know, just figuring out how to optimize the environment, you hit the roadblock that you need to technically learn. So, and usually in every environment you work on, that sort of, you know, new knowledge that you need and you don't have will arise. That, that sort of problem come, comes. And that alone uh, is really going to, you know, depending on the subject that you're learning, whether you like it or not. If, maybe if you're into texturing, then, oh, it's just going to be a, a fun thing to learn. But if you're not, you know, for example, it's going to take a lot of energy and time from, you know, your whole process. But I was wondering, how did you manage that thing? You know, just like you kind of explained, you know, how you went about, you know, doing your environments. But what happens, you know, when, for example, you hit a roadblock that you, you hit a problem that you don't know nothing about and you have to kind of adapt to that. And there's a deadline, obviously. Yeah. Um... I, I actually don't work, at least in my own stuff, like I don't work to deadlines. But if, you know, for example, we were talking about like a studio gig or something, then I would talk to someone who I, I would usually just ask people like the the industry is totally open to communication about these problems. Um, if I'm having an issue in my personal work, I'll reach out to friends who know more than me or know different things to me, like who are branched into different um, parts of environment art. Like the amount of environment artists that I know who have wildly different portfolios to me and different like skill sets, it's crazy. Like no one environment artist is exactly the same. So everyone's experienced different things and, and tried different things. Um, occasionally, like if I see someone on ArtStation who's done something, like I really want to get that right for my scene, I'll just message them. Hopefully they respond. Um, I think it's it's just all about communication and, and openness and hopefully if you help enough people out then they might you know others might help you along your journey too um, and in, in studio you know it's it's usually if you're working with a good team then yeah if you if you post a problem people will often flock to you and you know you can get maybe three or four people looking at this issue and trying to find a way through you know whatever roadblock you're hitting. Yeah, definitely. And it's kind of like, you know, Baldur's Gate, in the, in the act one of your journey, you help this NPC who you don't know even is going to matter or not. And in act three, you realize they're going to assist you in the final battle. Who knows, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, 
And all right, so that's really good. I mentioned Baldur's Gate again, and because right now we were entering the general art chat section of the podcast, which is you know where we t- usually you know talk about um, just random stuff, you know. And of course, the first random stuff, which is which isn't really random, at this point is Baldur's Gate. All right, so tell me. Before you tell me, I'll also I need to give a warning. In the next couple of minutes, we're going to talk heavy spoiler subjects about Baldur's Gate 3. Baldur's Gate 3. So, if you want to skip that, go in the captions and see the timestamp where we're going to finish the, this thing. So, with that out of the way, here we go. So, what class of character did you pick? And also, just how what deci- what major decisions did you make? What are your party? All right, tell me everything. Drop the juice. Uh, I am the most boring human alive, so I did uh, just good boy, you know, nice. Uh, I can't remember what class I played for the first playthrough. Maybe it was Paladin, I think. Just generic good boy for the first run, you know, save all the tieflings, uh, do all the good stuff, and then immediate flip side, full evil chaos Dark Urge for the second playthrough. I ended up doing Dark Urge as a monk which was a weird playthrough. Like he doesn't, the characteristics of the Dark Age doesn't really fit Monk, I don't think. Um, but yeah, just, just I wanted to experience like the polar opposites of the game uh, to really see what the devs had worked in to allow you to complete the game with killing like all of the NPCs. Uh, something that um, one of my favorite games and my friends always get frustrated for me bringing up is Fallout New Vegas. Um, and what I love that's different about it to other like Bethesda titles is that you can kill every NPC in the world and it's the game pretty much adapts to it and still continues. Like you, you can't mess the game up by doing that. Like there's always a route for you to choose to get like an ending, no matter how bad or messed up it is. And I really respected that in Baldur's Gate, especially like it's a much newer game. So much time has gone into like, uh, tying all these people together and conversations and the best part about the Dark Urge campaign was just like seeing all of the people drop off realizing how much like you miss out on by just everyone being dead um, and the game still runs like it still provides an ending for you it still gives you options and even new stuff based on the decisions that you make it's just it's such an impressive piece of like designed game um, not to mention it's gorgeous as well yeah, the, like the environments just blew my mind. The amount of details, the assets, just everything. Yeah. And there's not even that much loading screens in the game. That's the craziest part for me. Yeah, and the loading screens are fast too. It's a it's a very well yeah. optimized game. Exactly, like the amount of like every single detail, like that. Yeah, it's a ten out of ten game. I don't know what else to say. Like the amount of things to do. Like there was this person on YouTube who played as a troll bard. And in every conversation, you know, you can go to character select and choose your other party members. They would, he would make our, all his other party members to steal from that NPC he's talking to and start yeah, yeah, dancing yeah. behind them and then go about their quest. And instead of like trying to persuade or anything, it was just so funny. It gives you so much freedom to do all, the, all that it's stuff. It's insane the amount of creativity you can pull off in this game. Like it's yeah. absolutely insane. Like they're my my favorite thing that I found out on my own, which blew my tiny mind, was in the Green Forge when you're trying to free Absolute Near, right? That's like you know pompous guy, that elf who was yeah. trapped in the gas chamber. When you frame, there's a cousin that he kind of throws this little gnome in the lava, 
this little female gnome in the lava. And yeah. it, when I when he did that, and I, and I was in in my playthrough really deep, and I got so much, I was like, oh no, what should I do? <laughs> so I did my loading screen to see if there was any dialogue options to do, and I was like, no, this guy just kills her. But then, in the bottom left, I saw there was a bunch of options. In the middle of the cutscene, you can just like in real life that how would you go? We can attack and stop that. And I yeah. did. And it was just it blew my mind that wow. And and on top of that, then if you speak to that NPC, they have dialogue, like they're yes. they're completely written. Um I think something interesting that people have just found out recently is uh they've I, I think that they've kind of designed out this functionality. But um, you know, Minthara, like the the bad paladin that you can recruit in oh, yeah. the evil run. Oh yeah. Um you're not really supposed to be able to have her and characters like Karlak at the same time because I think Karlak and Will will leave the camp if you take like the goblin route and you bring all those people in. But they they have dialogue between Menthara and Karlak. Like they have written all that stuff. They did all of that work before they even knew how you were going to recruit these characters into your parties. So despite the fact that they technically can't play together, people have kind of like glitched it so that you can get them both in the party and just so much love was put into this like uh yeah no matter what where you look or what you change there will be like um reactiveness to your decisions and it really makes you feel like you're influencing the world um in a meaningful way yeah and one and one of the points that i could right now you know make much more clear when i talked about the state of game industry is that like games like Baldur's gate this coliseum these are timeless games and speaking of Fallout New Vegas, actually Fallout New Vegas, New Vegas is one of my favorite games of all time. I actually, even though I really love it, I wouldn't say it's a timeless game. But there are people who, who are like into RPGs and they played that game from 2010 and they're like, oh my God, this is so cool for its time. And yeah, Fallout New Vegas is really crazy, has crazy good writing and the settings, just everything about that game is just perfect for me. Like that's, it. like subjectively, that's my favorite game of all time. Fall on yeah. by the way. I played that since yeah. I was 12. And I'm 26 now, by the way. Man, I, and... I actually played it. Like, So I finished the Disco Elysium project. And I don't know, I just kind of had a nostalgia kick. So that's why I've been playing like the last couple of weeks. Like, oh, really? Just playing New Vegas games. So I was like, yeah, I, I just want to re-experience that. Like, you know, I had to install like the 10 mods that stop it from crashing every five oh, my minutes. God. I should like... definitely ask you for those. Because one of my big problems is that every time I play, I get this infinite loading screen glitch. And I just like, I guess we have to delete it again. Yeah, the um, Nexus has so many mods that will just like fix the game basically. So I had like the the most crash-free experience ever playing it this time. It's not the easiest thing to set up, but like um I yeah, I digress. Like it's uh it's such a it's really nice to go back to the the classics and experience those games again like as you get older, like you do look at them differently. It it can be hard to recommend those older games to people because just the times have changed so much. Like as I would love my friends to try Knights of the Old Republic too. Like that's one of my favorite RPGs too. Um, and it's just too old. Like it's the combat mechanics are so clunky. Some of the animation works incredible, but like, it's just, it doesn't really apply to like a modern audience at all. And it's one of those really old, like, one of the first 3D RPGs. And yeah, uh, it's 
those old systems don't really translate very well. Like you look at something like Baldur's Gate and it's it's beautifully designed, it's beautifully laid out. It makes sense to people who play it. It's very intuitive. Back then it just it wasn't. Like people didn't people expected you to have like a foundational knowledge of like the D and D rule set, because that's what that all those mechanics are, are built off. But you play games now and it's you know, they they will hold your hand through those experiences. Oh yeah, I know what you mean. Like well, as I said, you know, they try to make games, you know, very stale and boring when it comes... They, basically, what I'm trying to say, they really don't want to take risks when it comes to innovation. So they just stick with the same formula that has been going on and make the money, you know, out of just the brand name of it. Um, as I said, I don't want to mention name. I don't want to mention names of the studios or games in, that are have negative, like, you know, things that I'm talking about. But I'm only yeah. talking about the positive ones, yeah. I, I would say as well that, like, even if there is, like a studio or a game that you're thinking is not putting out something that you're happy with. It's, um, I think so much of the time it's important to remember that it's most of these decisions that are being made are not by like the developers, the people who are making like content for the project. Um, so many of those decisions are like out of the hands of people who put these things together. And, um, yeah, even if a studio is putting out something that gamers don't like, it's like, don't shoot, don't shoot the devs on Twitter. You know, they didn't, they were literally just doing their job. Like they get paid to make the stuff that they're told to make. Um, and yeah, they do get to influence the games and it's not like they're all powerless to stuff, but a lot of those overarching decisions can have yeah big impacts. And uh, we devs just try to make the best thing that they can given the freedom that they're given. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like you know, uh, and I and, and I didn't mean anything like that. I mean, I'm, I'm oh just, no, no, just... I know you don't. I'm just I'm speaking to the general yeah. crazy gamer audience. Yeah, which oh god, definitely, yeah, definitely listens to this podcast. Like there was this, uh, I saw this comment like one time on Twitter. Like someone posted an asset they worked on on a Valorant map, which yeah. there was a bunch of crates and a cloth over it, and some person was really angry. I said, when I knife this cloth thing, it doesn't leave a print. Like, and it was just so angry emojis and stuff like that. Okay, calm down. Like, yeah, don't don't worry. Like it's it's yeah. it's a game. Just have fun with it. Exactly. And um, but yeah, the the craziest thing is that I I'm really trying to think if if I found any bugs in the Baldur's Gate. But no, like the only problem that I found in Baldur's Gate three technically was the memory leaks that happened in Act Three, because mm. it was really obvious that they kind of, of course, because of deadlines. Uh, they had to kind of rush things a bit, even though it was rushed. It's compared to uh, the industry standard, it, it is uh, still perfect, you know. Yeah. And uh, like the in Act Three, I think I don't know if you experienced, it, but there was so much. Sometimes game gets laggy. Yeah, it slowed down. I mean, Baldur's Gate as well. Like, I even like now, like I wouldn't want to work on optimizing a city like Baldur's Gate, like as an environment the amount of detail complexity like individual city wall blocks being modeled like there is so much that went into creating that space and they've they've really injected so much detail and yeah optimizing a space like that has got to be very very difficult like i you know shout out to anyone who worked on just the city like it's uh yeah, would have been most some people who work there probably the entire time they were there, like worked just exclusively on Baldur's Gate. I can imagine, um, tough, tough stuff. Yeah, and um, just I couldn't like the only way. All right, I'm just gonna say this to uh, to anyone who doesn't know how Baldur's Gate is. Like, basically, imagine like if you're into role playing, you can literally do anything in real life that you could do 
in the game as well if you were in certain situations. Like not technically, of course, not technically everything. Like you can't, like you can't suddenly, like you know, I don't know, start doing Gangnam Style in front of the enemies. You know, just when it comes to technicality, of course, you can't do everything. Wait, actually, as a board. All right, the point is, it's the closest thing to a role-playing game that you could ever play, and it is just a complete masterpiece. And I'm sure even decades people will still play it. Because I I went on a Steam pages of Baldur's Gate One and Two. I read some really interesting things about those games. Did you know that in Baldur's Gate One and and that game came out like what 1997, 1998? Yeah, you could get the files of your um like the folder of the files of the profile of character you made in Baldur's Gate 1 and imported it in Baldur's Gate 2. And if yeah, you, for I... example, <laughs> hit or steal from an NPC in Baldur's Gate 1, when you upload this, when you get this files to your, the second installment of the game, the, the new NPCs in the game react to your actions in the previous game. Imagine just the creativity they put in. Yeah, that's incredible. Times. I didn't know about that. That's so cool. Yeah, I, I think... recently found it out. Because I, I think a lot of people, at least from my generation, would say that like that kind of like save game transferring and like taking your actions and, and like the consequences from the past was like a Bioware thing. Like would have probably first experienced it with like Mass Effect or Dragon Age of like here are the decisions I made in the first game and it's going to impact like the the world and the setting in the, in the second game. But oftentimes. It's. I mean, it was. It was so cool to see. But I think if you compared it to something like um, Baldur's Gate one or two, it might. It sounds like it could be like quite superficial compared to what they were doing back then. Yeah, and it's kind of really interesting because a lot of people also told me that you should give Divinity Original Sins or something like that. The second game, they said that was a masterpiece as well. Yeah, Divinity was was awesome. Yeah, and these games were. Like there's there's no like I'm trying to wrap my head around the fact that these two games at some point were being made at the same time in Larina Studio. <laughs> it's insane. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's Larian is a lot bigger, I think, than people expect as well. Like they've got they've got a lot of studios. Um and it does in take... total they have like I heard six hundred staff or more. I don't I'm not sure. I just heard. Yeah, I don't know. I mean it's it's a lot of people for like <laughs> I mean, I suppose it's not yeah. really. If you look at the, the scope of the game, it's uh, exactly. it actually probably feels a little small, but it's what is required, you know, these days for large scale games. I think the independence, independence, sorry, that they had for like a high level for Baldur's Gate as well has just been, you know, incredible. Like it's really helped that game flourish, not having as many uh, voices. I think that they've had a a really strong set of like the developers there who have been able to make the decisions like for the game and that's yeah made it such a cool experience yeah also fun fact Skyrim was made by only I think 100 or 110 people or something like that yeah and then, yeah yeah if you see the documentary of the making of Skyrim on YouTube like you see there's not many people worked on that game it's kind oh, of crazy man. on a game like Skyrim yeah well to go back to Fallout New Vegas like I'm talking about that was made in less than a year 10, like, 11 months. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Absolutely crazy. Even and by though, a team who hadn't actually worked with that engine yeah. before. Like, that was all fresh to them. Um, I That w- just won't be done these days. It can't be done. Like, you could even say, like, you know, of course, they got a lot of important assets already from Fallout 3. So even, even though the amount of details when it comes to writing and the quests and everything and 
Not just that, there's this channel on YouTube that shows COD content of every game. And the COD content that was cut out from Fallen Ewes was crazy. Like the, the map was yeah. much bigger. There were so much more quests and the stuff with the Legion. And like just, whew, like I don't know what to say. I think the character Ulysses from one of the DLCs had to be cut from the main game because he oh, had yeah, too much sense. dialogue. It didn't fit on the disc. Like they needed to move him off to a DLC basically and kind of restructure that stuff to to get it all to work. Because yeah, think- they were working under like they didn't get what we have now, which is uh, digital downloads and being able to put like hundreds of gigabytes on like that. Just freedom of putting it onto a CD. Yeah, I don't think it's just about the memories as well. I think yeah, it's also about the fact that they probably were on a tight deadline. That even though if they could add it, they had to still, you know, just to make the environments, the quests, and everything. They they had to. I think you know they were forced to, like not just with the Ulysses was with other the two other main characters of the oh, story. Yeah, of course, yeah. Elijah yeah. and the other guy in the band is Joshua Graham. Yeah, I really love that character, Joshua Graham. Oh, such yeah. a badass guy. Incredible uh, writing. Yeah, yeah, incredible. And I think my favorite, if I have to name one DLC that was my favorite, was the Dead Money. The writing of it was just superb. I don't know what else to say. Like, yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. It was best. Good times. Yeah. All right. We're reminiscing a bit too much, I guess. <laughs> and. Yeah, with that added away, let's also let me also ask a couple of questions about this coalition, which is kind of like one of the center point subjects of this. Sure, yeah, I've just been waiting. Yeah, (laughs) bubbling up in the pots while we're talking about other stuff. Um, So, how did your playthrough of this coalition went? Um, Well, I don't. I'll I'll avoid any stuff like type of spoilers, but I think. I was being very cautious. I think the the my first kind of introduction to the world was so um, I was it was such a jarring experience in a good way of like this is such a different world and you need to um, kind of respect that it's not it's not the real world it's not real life it's uh, the the world itself is so different to ours that you have to go in with a bit of a different mindset. I think there was one. Uh, tool tip on like a loading screen that really helped me enjoy the game more which was um, like police officers in this world have like kind of more freedom than you think and they're more willing to like let you do difficult or like weird stuff because there is an element of fear there that's not exactly what it said but along those lines of like yeah you just do what you feel is right like even if it is does sound a little crazy or does sound off the beaten track because i've realized early on i was very much apologizing to everyone like this intense guilt hearing about like what you may have been involved in and trying to make amends but like it's pointless in in many ways it was pointless to just apologize because it's not going to change the realities of the things like what your actions have you know they're finished they're done you weren't there for it um so yeah i just had an experience of, yeah, my first playthrough was so uh, enjoyable because I realized that I could just have the freedom that I've not had in lots of other games. Even though you're just playing the specific character, like you can do some crazy stuff. Like you can say some insane things to people. You can get reactions and dialogue that you've never experienced before. 
and learn about one of what I would say is the most interesting worlds in gaming. Like I, I'm just infatuated by the whole um, design of the place. Um, obviously, the art style was the thing that actually got me to get into the game uh, in the beginning. Um, yeah, it was it was a real life changing experience playing that game. Yeah, definitely. And for me, the writing was really like just like it um, was really unique, I would say. And it was yeah. really, of course, a strong. And I guess from hearing from your point of view, I think you kind of did a similar thing as me. I think that you probably got surprised when suddenly there, with the voice in your head said, you're a sorry cop then. You just like yeah, saying exactly. sorry to everyone. No. Yeah, and it was like, yeah, you know, like screw that. I'm not gonna be that person. Like, I'm yeah, getting exactly. my job done. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try do it right, but I'm gonna be unapologetic about it. Like, I'm, I have bigger things to deal with right now than like apologizing for those past mistakes. Like, actions will speak louder than words, and getting this done will be the best apology I could make to anyone involved. Really, is like having it mean something. Yeah, and regarding like the sociopolitical stance you could take as a character in the game they like regardless of what thing you choose you become a centrist you become a fascist you become a communist it doesn't matter it's the voice in your head will ultimately like, make fun of you and it's yeah really, it's, man i mean i often like leaned into ultra liberalism just because it was the funniest thing like it was just being on like the money grind like you know it's all about making That's stacks so to fight to, despite the fact that like you are the poorest man in Revachol. like you've got you're scrounging bottles off the street to like put into a dispenser to make like 10p a time um and like, despite that, you're still like all about the hustle with the grind like that's going to get you somewhere and I just love it um the political compass that they have is so um, interesting because it just it mocks every angle. Like there isn't no side is right. Every side has flaws to it. Um, mainly because they're all kind of political extremes. Like that's I suppose maybe it's a bit of commentary from them. I, I don't know, but it's yeah. It, it just mocks the extremes of of any kind of political leaning. Yeah, and there's one thing I also I think I forgot to ask you about in the previous section was what were some of your biggest challenges making the Disco Elysium scene? Um, for challenges, it, I think it was the the um, delivering something that um, fans would fans of the game would enjoy. I think that was the biggest struggle, like. It's, it, it can be hard enough to make like a cool environment piece, but for, for a fan of the game, I, I really wanted to make sure that people saw details that they could connect with and would remind them about the game and bring them back to like a moment. Um, it was, yeah, it, it did require more time and a lot more thought when I was working on like individual assets to see if there was a way for me to inject something special for them in. Um, thankfully, there's so much good artwork for me to reference, but yeah, there was a lot of pressure there. Um, I didn't, I didn't want to do an injustice to something that like has already like. I, I mean, I, I think I remember seeing a comment that was like, "Why did you do this? Like, why did you make this as a piece of art? Like, the game's already there. Like, you know." Um, and to an extent, I was kind of like, "Oh, I, I kind of agree with that." Like, but my 
attitude in the beginning was like, I was going to apply my own, you know, perspective, my own um, style to it and try to learn a bit from how their style was and see if I could project it anyway. Um, and, and yeah, like I, I didn't want it to be a one-to-one recreation. Um, I wanted to make sure that people would see this and think like it brings them back to, to disco a little bit. It's, it's different enough where it kind of has its own like value because it's, it's not just like a full recreation, but also just something that does that holds up to the quality of what was there originally. Like I couldn't, I couldn't leave stuff in there that just didn't look good, like, or rushed. It needed to really be some of my best work. Um, and I do feel like it's one of my better pieces. Like, I definitely started to slow down on like the prop quality towards the end. Cause I was like, I've done so many props for the scene. Like I just, I don't have the willpower to do anymore. I just need to get this done. But, um, yeah, I, I, I couldn't put out something that wasn't like right. It had to be, it had to actually be a tribute and not just like a basic bit of quick fan art. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, regarding the, person who said like the game in Rart has been done before in 3D, which technically he's, or her, I don't know, uh, they were right, but um, I think, you know, the, the main thing with John Ramit is, I don't know, because of the scales and the way it was made, I think it could be used in like a, making like, you know, cinematic teasers out of like, you know, different like, you know, dialogues or scenes of the game, or maybe even like a, you could do a little tease, like a little teaser of you know from the first person view of you know harry <laughs> yeah. and waking up and it's in a f- first person view you know because one thing that i've noticed that is a trend when it comes to you know successful fan arts and just in general things that really pop out and get viral is when you take a game for example an Isaac, let's say i don't know Baldur's gate one all right and you take a scene of it and you recreate it in i don't know i guess everyone's working with Unreal Engine, so let's say Unreal Engine, but in a first-person view with, you know, modern, you know, technical, you know, graphics and stuff like that. So you took something that was isometric and kind of, like, grungy and stuff like that, and you turned it into a new, like, you know, much more palatable... Um, like, actually, palatable... By palatable, I don't mean the original, uh, like, the disclosing thing wasn't palatable, but modern. you, you yeah, get the just, point, yeah, you know? yeah, more modern, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And... Um, like one thing I had in mind that I wanted to do it was to do a 3D environment, you know, practice of uh, one of the environments of the game Machinarium. Do you remember the game Machinarium from 2009? No, no, never heard of it. Oh, God, you should definitely play this. Um, Amanisha Studio, I think, someone, I think was the name of the studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, maybe I'll explain a little bit of the game. Maybe you remember it. It was like this little robot that gets stumped in a junkyard first, and we have to collect our body parts and go to the city and save everyone. It was a point-and-click adventure, you know, game. Yeah, no, not clicking any bells, but I'm interested. Dude, you should definitely... All right, after this podcast, I'll show you... You'll Google it and you'll see what I mean. Okay. But basically, what I'm trying to say, it was a 2D game, all right? Point-and-click adventure game. So it wasn't in 3D at all. So if at me as a 3D and Roman artist be successful in taking a piece of that world and making it 3D, I'm sure that's going to get viral. If yeah. I do a good job, of course, you know, because it has a lot of fan base. It's very well loved and there hasn't been much 3D studies of that thing. Yeah, so. I I suppose what I realized after doing this piece, because I've never done fan art really before. Like this is my first piece of like art that is directly a tribute to another piece of media um, is that when it when it comes to, like the purpose of it as well, um, 
it just needs to like people just need to think it's cool like that's that's all like as long as people look at it and think like you know get some pleasure out of it that's all the purpose needs to be like they just need to look at it and if it brings them back to memories of the game that's like great some people have said that um if they just look at it and think oh that's cool i hadn't seen something like that before that's all it needs to be it just needs to be something cool for people to look at like it's art it it doesn't need to have a practical purpose like it's all about pleasure to the eyes like you wouldn't look at like a canvas and say like what's the point of like the mona lisa it's there as like a piece of it's it's an important piece of artwork that a lot of people enjoy and think it's a technical masterpiece that's all art has to be yeah exactly and um speaking of that you know talking about art and artists and stuff like that i the next question is who are some of your favorite artists and designers that have inspired you the most? Um, I've been very, very fortunate in my kind of career to get to know better some of the people that have inspired me. Um, so when I was getting into the into the industry, um, two kind of portfolios, well, I suppose three portfolios that really kind of spoke to me when I was trying to get work in the field was um, Jacob Norris, uh, Ben Keeling, and uh, Martin Teichman, uh, who I believe you interviewed, I think actually like really recently. Martin Teichman. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Again, like these these were like the portfolios that I saw, and I was like, I got to be like these guys. Like even Martin, I I emailed when I was a student to be like, Hey, like how do I? Is my portfolio okay? Like, am I going to be able to make it? Like, is what's what's the route I should take? Same with Jacob. Um, and since then, I've been lucky enough to. Like I worked with Ben at Rocksteady uh, for a couple of years um, and Jacob, uh, I've worked with him on kind of various projects since, um, you know, graduating and getting into the field. Um, but those guys really, their portfolios were so interesting to me because they had all that range and variety that I've been trying to build up myself. Like they had done all manner of things. Like Jacob had like scenes, he had foliage, he had a hard surface, he had all of these really interesting things that i was like i want to know how to do that like i don't feel like a well-rounded artist until i know i can do all of those things too um same with ben like just so much variety in the portfolio and and martin had just some of the coolest work from like naughty dog which i think for a lot of people studying at the same time as me like naughty dog santa monica people just looking at that as like the peak you know that's where we should all be um, you know, to, to get work. Like that's the goal. Um, and I think as I've obviously with the disco scene being prominent now, um, Alexander Rostov, just huge, huge inspiration. Like, um, one of the first 2d artists that I felt like the work really, really speaks to me. Like, I just love the style. I'm obsessed with it. Um, I even have like a, a bunch of the art that he like made for the game hanging in my house. Cause like, I want to see it daily. Like I want to see those pieces because they bring me a lot of joy to look at and they inspire me. Um, yeah. I'd say those, that's like a, a good foundation for where I'm at right now. Yeah. Also shout out to Alexander Russell. He was all the podcast, like in the summer of 2022, I think. Uh, incredible episode. Go give it a listen if you if you haven't. Like, I, I'm not sure which episode exactly what number was it, but it was in the 190s. Yeah, 190 to 200. It's between those in, in that range. I'm 100% sure. You know, actually, talking about like the podcast stuff, like who's the 
who's your favorite person that you've interviewed? Who's been the best? I mean, obviously, I know that you don't want to rank like your guests, right? But like, yeah, I know. Was, was there one that really stuck out of like, oh man, that was that was just great. Like that conversation. Was just, sick. Oh god, there were there were a couple of episodes that I that the flow was really nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and like. Here's the thing, you know, with uh, with with the interviewing and podcasting, you know, as you know, you have a lot of different guests. First of all, the host it has his own personality or her personality, and yeah. every guest it also is a different personality. So always the chemistry is going to be different, you know. But sometimes the chemistry just hits, and it's sometimes it's with the person that you wouldn't expect at all, you know. So if I have to just name a couple of episodes from the top of my head, is one that come that can come to my mind is. Uh, with Tiago Klafke, he's actually my instructor in 3D and yeah. as well. We we spoke for two that hours. Legend as well, or something. Yeah, Laura Gallagher was uh, she was amazing as well. She's a 3D artist in Montreal, and uh, Montreal, yes, Montreal, yeah. And we I spoke with her for two hours or I think that was the longest episode. Anna Moshak, she's an illustrator. She's an Ukrainian illustrator who's now in Germany. I had two hours with her as well. Um, I'm not just talking about the length, you know, in general. Yeah, you know, yeah. if I, well, I, suppose, about... I suppose the length does to an extent like influence yeah. it. Cause like, the longer that like, I mean, obviously if people have, don't have the time, that, mm-hmm. that's one thing, but like if they have the time and the conversation can just keep kind of flowing naturally, yeah. that's, that's awesome. Two other honorable mentions I could name was uh, one of them was Ahmed Alduri. He was mm-hmm. really fun to talk to. We, and by, here's how I measure like how fun sometimes conversations get like, I kind of have like a really sometimes bad ADHD in like, you know, especially when I'm playing RPG games or yeah, trying yeah, to yeah. just talk about different stuff, you know, with my friends. Um, it, and it sometimes uh, seeps through my podcasting as well, but I've tried to control it. And one of the, my measuring six of, you know, how fun a conversation is, how random the topics get, you know? And if I have to name a couple of episodes as well, like Ahmed Aldri, as I said, we talked about so many different things, aliens, oh my God. Like just so many random stuff, and also Lola Yiting Zhang. She's also a concept artist at the. I think she she I had a call with her from Seattle. She she's working at Three Four Three Industries on Halo and stuff like that. I think I'm not sure. And that was really fun too. And like there's there were so many episodes by now, like 250. Oh my god. Yeah, my goal yeah. is to get to 1,000 initially someday. A thousand. Yeah. Really? Wow, man. I'm, I'm one fourth of the way there, man. Yeah, you are. I mean, it's it's very impressive. I was looking through the it's amount of podcasts you've done. It's it's very cool. And I was thinking as well, like, why? What what got you into podcasting? Like, what what was the? I want to interview artists. Like, where did that come from? Well, just to give you like a short but sweet answer, you know, because <laughs> the reason I say short is because the listeners of the podcast have heard this story like you know hundred times. Sure, sure. Very sick of it, but. Long story short, um, it's, it, there there were many reasons, but one original story I could give was there there were some you know very well known artists like you know traditional artists in my hometown. I'm, I'm originally from Iran. My hometown was Shiraz, so mm-hmm. um, and I actually interviewed that guy by the way, Adel Yazdi, the artist I talk about, traditional artist. He was a painter, yeah. a sculptor, like he was an all around just an amazing. Like his whole house was an art piece, you know. <laughs> His every room was a workshop, and he and he was residing in an old like traditional house, like from 100 to 200 years ago. So it was yeah. a really weird, trippy place, you know. And in my head at the time, I was like, "Wow, if I could, I would have made documentaries out of each and every one of these artists." And there was, and in that you know, certain house, there was other artists' house. 
that live there and no one knew them. I mean, thankfully now people know them a little yeah. bit because of social media, but at the time no one knew them and they were like amazing artists. And that was one of my reasons I really got into it. And later on, after a couple of years while I was here in, and actually the podcast started that 14th of March of 2020. I know it's such a cliche story out of COVID, you know, out of quarantine, I started. Sure, sure. But, and, um, but to me, like the, the main thing was I, I'm kind of the, you know, like, like to talk to different people, you know? I suppose um, with, with COVID as well, actually, like this is a great way to ensure that you have regular conversations with human beings, yeah. which wasn't an easy thing to have during COVID. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I mean, even if the COVID wasn't there, I just, I, I'm just genuinely interested and curious, you know, and I love to listen to different artists. And, and by artists, I mean, just creative people, because I had architects on this podcast. I had, you know, so many different things. I had game developers. I had even... Um, People who are super good at like social media, I, I brought one of them on to just give advice and guide other artists, you know, how to, you know, like, you know, get their social media game up, you know, so just, you know, just genuinely curious, you know, and um, throughout this podcast, I've made a lot of good friends. I made a lot of good connections. Like I never really cared that much about the views or the likes or followers and stuff like that. Um but also one one other thing I could I, there's so many reasons I could I could tell you like why I'm still doing it is also another another big reason is that to me it's it would be really funny that in hundred years people would would be something maybe someone like me would be really interested hmm how was the normal day to day life and discussions of I don't know artists from hundred years ago and yeah. this is literally a time capsule for that if yeah, you think yeah yeah you know, because it's timeless the internet ain't going anywhere. Yeah, like I don't know if you know this guy in YouTube on YouTube, David Hoffman. He's this documentary. He's really old now. He's a documentary maker from like since Vietnam War, and his some of his interviews have gone super viral. And his whole philosophy and point was making time capsules of like normal everyday life and conversations, which at the time people didn't give a shit at all. And now we they're getting a lot of views because right now imagine imagine right now you had like an access to an archive of conversations and people from like eighteen hundreds, you know, that was really interesting, right? Yeah, yeah, incredibly interesting. I mean, I hope that people still find like our conversation, for example, interesting in a hundred years. Um, I suppose the ones that you were describing earlier, like the ones that you felt were great conversations, like those were probably the ones that like stick out the most to people because um, just good conversations are always kind of interesting to listen to. But yeah, I, I like that as a principle. And I suppose after 250 episodes, like you've done a lot of episodes. Do you still feel like that original like goal that you had for it is like still prominent or like, would you say your, your goals for the podcast have changed since starting? Honestly, not so much. If now that I think about it, like it's just like, I didn't start it as a serious project. Oh my God, I'm going to be a great kick-ass podcaster and stuff like that. No, I was like, that'd be fun to do that. You know, yeah, because I like, yeah. I like listening to podcasting. Like it was such a chill start. Like I, it was such a mellow thing. I was just, hmm, that'd be funny. And I did like, you know, 10, 12 episodes. And I was like, hmm, that'd be funny to reach 100 episodes. Then I started going crazy and just inviting people and just, you know, I finally reached 100 episodes. I was like, hmm, that would be really funny to get 1,000 episodes. Like, it's literally like that. Like, to me in my life, in life, I don't know, you've probably experienced this as well. When you take something so seriously, you usually put a lot of pressure on yourself and you, you sometimes really crumble under pressure for different yeah, reasons. Yeah. But when you do something for shits and giggles or memes, you know, you realize you then you're 
unintentionally do something, you know, which, which, by the way, I'm not saying I'm doing something big. Like, if you look at the, on average, the quality of the recordings of a podcast, like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a super self-aware guy. It's not perfect, to be honest. The audio quality could be a lot better. The video quality could be a lot better. Like, I actually bought this light later after 60 episodes to make the, even though I don't have a webcam, the video quality would be better. Yeah. But because at the end, like, you know, I'm not doing it for the followers necessarily. Of course, I do my best to make the edits better. To, I put it on YouTube and all the audio platforms. But in the end of the day, I'm doing it for me. If I don't enjoy it, I don't care. I'm not doing it anymore. And I still enjoy it. But these past couple of months, because I've been going through so many things, you know, I had to deal with pneumonia in summer. Then I had to, you know, now oh, I'm... Pneumonia. Dealing. Oh, yeah. dude. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I had COVID God. and pneumonia. Yeah, yeah, it, it, like... It's been a roller coaster, man, this past couple yeah. of years. Yeah. And um, yeah, funny thing, they, they, the doctor kind of suggested that they might have to surgically remove my lung or something. And I had my Turkish friend with me. Yeah. It, it, I, they, they showed me the MRI. Bro. And, yeah, it was really bad. But thankfully, I'm good now. I got this much antibiotics. And yeah, it was a wild, <laughs> cr- crazy story, man. Yeah. And it's kind of funny. It's the same time I got that like uh, disease that, the exact time last year before that, I had COVID. Yeah. I wonder if there's a correlation. I mean, it could be that it just messed your immune system up so much that it allowed oh other God. things to jump yeah. in. Like, um, I mean, I'm not a medical professional and I never will be. But, um, yeah. How about definitely. you? Yeah, they need like you know, really rough, you know, patches when it comes to like suddenly getting a disease and you have to push through it. Um. Yeah, no, I like no. this. The podcast is getting personal. I really like this. What's going on? Um, no, I, I've been uh, pretty fortunate in terms of like health stuff. Um, I've never really run into uh, issues with like, um, you know, needing to go to like, I've never been to the hospital. I've never needed to go. I've been very, very lucky. Not, I've never broken a bone. Um, some would say that like, oh, that must mean you're very healthy. Some would maybe say, oh, you're so risk averse. Like you don't, you know, put yourself out there a lot. Um, but yeah, I've, I've been very fortunate. Um I think the worst I've ever really had, like, been things like I think COVID was pretty rough, but uh, ear infections—that's that's my fun thing, you know, gross fun thing. That's not great. Um, yeah, I've, I've been very fortunate with the health side of things. Um, I, I've known some people who've gone through health stuff, and I don't know how they've maintained like uh, momentum on their stuff throughout that throughout those things. But it is really important. Um, if you can do it, then you can probably continue to work through anything. Yeah, definitely. Like, and one big thing I could take away that I've learned in my life by now, the 26 years and four months I have experienced in this life, yeah, which is, I think, literally, like, this is one of my biggest lessons in life is the most important rules is that mental health is everything. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't care what anyone says or like, what medical journal says. Like, you know, if the reason that people live up to more than 100 years is it's just mental health, I think, mm-hmm. because you see them you know, drink whiskey, smoke cigars. and But there was this guy who was a World War II veteran. I think he was the oldest World War II veteran. And he passed away a couple of years ago. He lived up to 116 years. And even he was still driving, by the way. He, every year he would go and renew his driving license. And he would, you know, eat. He he showed, they were making a documentary. He was eating two scoops of pecan bu- pie butter ice cream. I think I've seen this guy. Yeah. Yeah. He lived in like a like a suburban like exactly. residence in, in the U.S., right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I, I can't remember if it was the same guy, but I'm pretty sure like he he was like ah, it's all just down to like basic diet. Like it was just like keeping it simple. I think 
yeah, the ice cream thing. He was like, I can eat this every day. And he would say, I don't actually inhale the smoke. I puff it out. So it's healthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, <laughs> yeah. wow, this guy is such a badass. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, rest in peace. Yeah, honestly, he's passed away, I heard. And, um, yeah. But he lived a full life, 116 years. I mean, damn. Yeah, man. I was going to say with the mental health stuff, like, I think that a lot of people's aversion to and, and the struggles of doing um, personal artwork in your free time is is it, it can have a real effect on your mental like on your mental health and in ways that people don't really expect um, because so much about like what you create as an artist is just constantly open to people's like criticisms because it's it's the first judgment that like anyone you know like the saying don't judge a book by its cover. It's like, well, people will with art because it's literally what you see. It's the first thing. Like, it's that knee-jerk response when you see like a character artist's work when they're a, a junior and it's instantly an uncanny valley and you can tell immediately this is not what a human looks like. And it's so it could like if you tell them those things of like this doesn't look right, this doesn't look like, you know, a human being, um, it can be so difficult because it's literally a criticism of your eye, like how you interpret, how you make things. And that can be really tough to go through. Um, I think it's just developing that thick skin or just recognizing that it's, uh, you have to work through a lot of that stuff to, to get, to be a good artist. You can't, um, coast through with, I mean, it, it depends on where, what your goals are, obviously, but, um, yeah, you've, you've got to separate yourself from it at some point and, and let the art just be the art and you be you. Uh, the criticisms of your artwork aren't necessarily a reflection of you. And even if you do good artwork, that doesn't necessarily make you a good person. Um, I think I've seen too many times now artists say, don't meet your heroes because an amazing piece of artwork doesn't always mean that you're going to get on with the person. Um, yeah, I think it's really important to express that separation. Um, it can be really hard to do personal art on top of like a full-time job as well. Um, I think I said earlier, like I don't set deadlines for any of my personal work because like I'm not working for anyone but myself. And if I could work for myself, I wouldn't set deadlines. It'll get done when it gets done. Um, I know that like I can, I don't need a deadline to motivate me. I can power on to the finished like product. Um, but yeah, people just need to find healthier ways to, to go about that stuff. Yeah, definitely. Like, you know, about the whole thing that, you know, just because don't meet your heroes and stuff like that. Like I, I have to say one, one, this, this thing that even, the, and, it's, and it's purely subjective based on my experience of, like, you know, talking with so many different personalities and characters is that, um, Sometimes, you know, when you hear a rumor about someone, like an artist, don't try to jump on the bandwagon. Not just not just that artist, just in general, even between the, your circle of friends. Always try to see clearly all sides of the story before you make judgments. You know, because you, the situation can get, can get really weird, you know? And, um, yeah, I've personally maybe, seen uh, like oh, stuff yeah. like this where, where I mean, I'm not going to mention anything of like course. personal, but like I've seen this happen. I've seen this person's done X and this group thinks that, you know, that's happened. This other group, you know, thinks that something else has happened. And it's, it's really scary to see that, especially when like as an outsider, you might like both people on side of, you know, an argument and think like, 
that potentially associating with either group could make you out to be like a villain because you know people have such you know emotional feelings about something um it's really it's really scary and it's kind of why at least in this industry profession like i i don't i'm not ever going to express my opinion or pick a side like it's not worth it um it doesn't make for it, it doesn't it doesn't actually fix a, a situation necessarily it's um just it can only just feed the fire of like the grief and or the grievance um yeah it's it's tough it's really tough i think yeah. empathy is necessary for getting yeah. through those situations yeah and the, and the other big thing is that no one is perfect like no one and what i mean by that is maybe that artist that you look up to and he's her or her track record has been really good when it comes to you know maybe they match all your ideologies you know and stuff like that and they suddenly some someday say oh this guy's bad yeah that guy is not perfect that or that the woman is not perfect they're probably have their own biases and they could be wrong in their judgment so always try to see it with your just make your own decisions don't try to jump on any bad wagon and also like I'm going to be honest. I even made some stupid mistakes when, when it comes to interacting with people. And then sometimes guests of the podcast. Yeah, there, I said it. And I, and I, and I regret it. And um, I, I said my stars. And that's that's it. And just because you see me all the time smiling, doing the introduction, doesn't mean I'm a perfect person. It's just the only thing I can do is well, just live and learn. You also, you also talk publicly in like on a podcast for like yeah. hours at a time like and you do it a lot like you've done 250 episodes like that's a lot of yeah conversation still, you know, I have to be to... public like i mean i i found recently um when the disco stuff kind of like went live um man it's really weird to see like your name like out there it's very weird. I, I'm very uncomfortable with it. Um, I am. I am an introvert. I'm like starting to get better at like the public speaking. Like I, man, my first university talk, I was just shaking through the whole thing. I was so nervous. Like it was the most terrifying thing in the world. And I'm trying to get better at like, you know, showing my stuff publicly. But with the disco scene, it, it hit like it. I suppose all of my artwork up until this point has just hit artists. It just goes to Art Station. Goes to like art community Twitter, but this is like, no, this is people who enjoy the game. They don't need to be an artist. They could just be anyone. It got picked up by like news outlets, like PC gamer. And I'm getting attention from people who are completely, they're, they're consumers more than like artists. They're outside of like, you know, the, the niche that I'm used to and seeing like, yeah, all of that response, it can be, is terrifying. Like three days after it posted, I wasn't feeling good about it being posted. I was like, oh my God, I just want to hide. Like, I don't want this to be seen anymore. Can people just go back to not seeing this and like forget that it ever existed? Um, and it's, yeah, it, it's, it's really weird. I guess the best way I could describe what you're trying, the feeling that you're trying to describe is like, you feel like you have, you're like in your underwear in the middle of a jungle and there's like, trees hundreds from 360 degrees there's pikes pointing at yeah, you and you're trying yeah. to like jesus is this gonna poke me is this gonna poke me and and at and, the end of the day that's literally just like it's just art like it's there's nothing that people can interpret like weirdly about it i don't think um but i suppose in your position like you have to you're maintaining conversations with people that can take very different like routes and 
yeah, like you might run into a topic where you say the wrong thing and like there it's been said and like it can be, or maybe you forget to remove something in an edit and um, it's stressful. Like it's really stressful. Um, I, I empathize with that. Yeah, thanks so much. But, you know, my whole thing is just to, you know, keep it real as much as possible when it comes to recording the podcast. Like the big thing is, when someone is playing the podcast on the background while they're doing the dishes or playing video games or working on something, I want them to feel like they're overhearing a conversation, not listening to a polished product such as podcast number 251, for example, you know, like that's my main goal. One of the thing is because, because to be honest, I always listen to podcasts or watch YouTube videos whenever I'm doing something. That's not really a good thing, actually, when it comes to like attention. But um, I do that, you know, like when it comes to even working out, I have podcasts on or just, you know, just anything, you know. And so I'm basically trying to make a product that I would actually would enjoy listening to, you know, just an actual conversation. Just like, you know, like another good way I can make an example is those radio station conversations in different GTA games. Yeah, yeah. Remember? I mean, they're, they're like some of the best uh, written dialogue in gaming. Yeah, they're amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the I think what you enjoy about those is that they're just so um, satirical that that's, oh, that's yeah. where you get the joy out of it. But um, yeah, I, I, I enjoy talking about art as much as, you know, the next artist. I suppose it, it can sometimes get like the topics, at least I felt with some podcasts, like I... I'm, a, I'm afraid I haven't listened to a ton of yours yet. Like it's, it's a new thing for me to discover. Um, the Rostov podcast is like my next thing to listen to. Um, but yeah, I think like repetition and covering like the same topics, like I think it's, it's a really important discussion to have, but like the whole how to get into the industry thing is something that I think at a time I was getting very sick of. And I was like, ah, why is this topic being covered? And it's like, well, I'm bored of it because I'm in the industry and it's, in, it's irrelevant to me. And I was also questioning, like, why does the topic come up so much? And then I remembered that, like, yeah, getting into the industry for me is so different to how someone is going to now. Like, enough years have passed where, like, yeah, no, they, they need someone now to tell them like who's just got in like here's the route and you just hope that like the right people are on like their platform telling people how to get in now because i could tell a student how i think you should get into the industry but i didn't do it last year like someone else did um i can tell you how i got in but it might be irrelevant to to current artists Yeah, I'm sorry. There was something wrong with my microphone. I was just no, that's so good, to... man. Yeah, that's <laughs> so good. I was like, that was pretty awkward. And uh, yeah, see, like this is one of those moments as well. Um, but I guess, like, by the way, I have to, like, you know, say sorry in advance if you're going to listen to those my old episodes. Like, even they they couldn't be considered old because they were like 190 episodes in. Uh, but. Yeah, there's always something. I, I I always find something wrong with every episode I record. You know. For example, I'm like, you know, why do I, you know, fiddle with my hair so much in that episode? Why do I, like, not looking at the camera right, you know? Like, there's so many of these things when it comes to this. But I always try to, like, you know, keep calm and just trying to enjoy the whole process as much as possible and learn from the, any guest that comes on. And that's all Man, I can do. But I fortunately... Mean, I'm, I'm going to listen back to this and I'm like, I, I don't believe I sound like that. I sound like an idiot. Like, I hate my voice. It's the worst thing in the world. Like, it's it will be the thing that stops me from listening back to this podcast, actually, I think. It's like, oh, I just sound like a dick. 
<laughs> nah, I don't think so. Like, I mean, at first I, I used to think about my voice, but right now I've heard it so much that I'm like, eh, that's just my voice, I guess. Yeah, you, know? you get used to it, you know, yeah. which is a good reason to accept podcast invitations, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And all right, so we talked so much about know, technical questions and stuff and, you know, about the game industry. But now I want to ask you something like a little bit off topic, like, what area beside the area you're working on right now would you be interested to explore and learn in the future? Like anything non-art related going on in your life? Non-art related? Yep. Oh, okay. Um, I think I think I'm looking at, I kind of want to get into like uh, maybe doing some like alcohol like production stuff, like making my own booze. Like uh, I've been seeing a lot of stuff about making like mead and making like ciders and spirits and stuff. And that just sounds really fun. Um, I'm kind of always looking for uh, uh, ways to expand my list of hobbies. I think um, I've come to the realization now that like, you know, working as much on like my own art as I have has left me with a passion to go out and find like other hobbies to do in my free time. Um, And yeah, that, I've been really getting into making coffee as well. Like um, ever since I, I moved up to Liverpool, because I was living in London for um, quite a while. And the worst part about London was that um, you can't afford anything more than like the smallest flat in the world. Like it's it's tiny, it's expensive, and you can't really like host people. But I'm, I'm finally able to like, I've got enough space to like bring people up. And I think having things like, coffee to provide like you know maybe if i had my own alcohol to provide like it just sounds like a a really nice experience to be able to like give to people when like they come up and visit um yeah i think just that kind of stuff sounds fun to me right now yeah that sounds awesome like i've made my own meat when i was 16 when oh yeah uh, yeah out of a youtube tutorial and how did that go (laughs) actually pretty good yeah Surprisingly pretty good, yeah. I think okay. it, their YouTube channel was Storm the Castle Lockham. I really loved that channel. Yeah. Like the guy would teach, you know, how to make, you know, miniatures, like paper mache's and meads and anything okay. medieval, you know? And yeah. of course, the reason I made mead was because of Skyrim. And at the time, I was really yeah. interested, you know? Yeah. Well, I I think um, 16-year-old me trying to make mead would probably uh, mess it up extremely badly. No, but and... that, that that's a nice testament to how easy it is to make mead. It's very yeah. simple. Yeah. Honestly. Well, now I know that, but I think even 16-year-old me back then probably wouldn't have been able to do it. I think I, I don't had know, to, man. If you go by the tutorial, <laughs> yeah. If you go by the tutorial, you can do anything. Honestly, I love YouTube for that. And well, well, and again, of course, well. We've reached the final question and section of the podcast, which is called time capsule. Okay. And well, as the name suggests, I think you can already kind of guess, you know, what how it's going to be. Um, basically, if you could, you know, from all your experience in life, what are some of the most important and valuable lessons that you've learned in your life that you could uh, tell anyone? Like, imagine this recording is going to be put into a time capsule, and like hundreds of years in the future, people can listen to it. And what would that be from yourself, a human, to any other human being who might listen to this podcast at any point of time in the future? What would you have to say? Um, I don't know who originally said this, but I think fail faster is the thing that I'll always, you know, tout as like, this is the, this is the best 
attitude to take towards, I think, learning anything and learning being so much of a part of people's lives, like just be prepared to fail and don't let that knock you back. Just jump straight back in with the knowledge that you've picked up and fail again and keep doing that until you get it right. Like learn from the mistake, move on, apply the new knowledge. Um, Don't let um, the pain of making a mistake or like, you know, making like just having an accident, like don't let that prevent you from trying again. Cause it's, if, if you don't, and that's where you stop, then you never kind of realize where you get to go with things and like how far you can go. Um, I mean, with the personal art that I do, like, man, there are so many times where you make something and like, you just realize, oh my God, this just hasn't, this doesn't live up to the quality it needs to be. It, I'm going to have to start from scratch. I did like, I messed up completely or like I, I tackled this from the wrong direction. You have to make those mistakes. So the next time you do it, it's better. I love it. Very simple and short, but very powerful. Fail faster. That's it. Fail faster. Again, I can't remember who said it. Someone a lot more profound and interesting probably said that. Um. Yeah, I think I've heard that somewhere before. Like, yeah, I think I don't know who it was, but yeah, it doesn't matter. If you Google, we'll find out. Uh, but for now, thank you so much for taking your time and coming on this podcast on such a short notice. Literally yesterday, we had a chat and here we are. Yeah, no and problem. Man. The time of recording of this podcast by Turkey's time right now is 15th of November at 6.49 p.m. to 2023. And it'll be uploaded probably next week, around Monday or Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday yeah. And uh, with that being said, where can people contact you if they had any questions? Is your Instagram okay? Yeah, um, our station is probably the best place to reach out just because um, when I'm on our station, I'll be thinking about, you know, uh, professional stuff, but it's kind of like the place for it. Um, but yeah, Instagram, Twitter, art station, anywhere is good to kind of reach out. Oh, sorry. Again, I forgot to mute my mic. <laughs> All right. Awesome. And with that out of the way, thanks so much for coming by and thank you to anyone who tuned in to listen to this episode as well. Um, thanks so much for putting up with my very messy schedule of upload. I'll try it. I'm just a human who's trying to survive, I guess. That's the best way I could describe my situation. So yeah, bear with me on that one. And with that being said, again, thanks to anyone who listened and thanks again for coming by. Until next episode, which is going to be recorded tomorrow. Bye-bye. Take care. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Bye.